In this episode, we speak with Brian Drant, founder and managing partner of Questa Capital, a healthcare venture growth equity firm that invests in breakout growth companies. Brian was recognized by GrowthCap as a top 25 healthcare investor of 2022. He has been actively investing in healthcare since 1996. Brian specializes in the medical device, healthcare services, healthcare technology, and specialty pharma sectors. During his investment career, he has served on 42 boards of directors and has overseen the deployment of $1 billion in equity capital. Brian's key investments include Pocket Health, Aviv, and Bicycle Health. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. Something really unique I saw in your background that you've served on 46 boards, and that's quite a number. And I can only imagine there's folks that maybe they're on boards, but they don't have the experience over time and the various dynamics that occur while on a board to really maybe provide the most value to the boards that they sit on. One question I had for you was, how has your approach to being a board member evolve over time? RJ, thanks for having me this morning. Let's see, on the board, yeah, I've been doing this for a while. So I have been on a number of boards over time. And, you know, I think my approach has probably mellowed a little bit over time, which is that I'm trying to be a little more selective about when I make comments or input and really wait for the things that count. I'm a big believer that a board meeting should not run longer than three or four hours at an absolute maximum. And so what that means to me is that every moment in that board meeting is incredibly precious. And so sort of talking for the sake of talking can be pretty detrimental to the flow of the meeting and to actually getting things done. So I try and be pretty selective. I think also just managing the dynamic of the meeting, facilitating other people's involvement. You know, if you know that somebody's got a particular strength or particular area of expertise that they want to add, trying to sort of draw them out into that. And so trying to play a little bit of a facilitator function, I think, can also be valuable, you know, depending on the size of the board. I think we certainly see it all as companies raise more capital if they do significant venture rounds, the size of the board tends to grow. And so that requires a little bit more management than your more classic kind of five-person board for a Series A or Series B company. I'd like to go into the breadth and depth of your experience in the healthcare industry you were at NEA for close to two decades, and you were there during a span of time where you saw tremendous growth. And I'd like to break this up into your time in that phase, mid-90s to 2015, and then we'll head into Cuesta. But could you tell us a little bit about what you saw in the healthcare industry and particularly investing into the healthcare industry during that span of time? When I was in my mid-20s, I joined NEA. It was definitely a different world. The total assets under management at NDA at that time were about $750 million, you know, which is just a small fraction of one of their funds today. And venture capital was not something you really heard about in the mainstream media. You didn't read about venture capital firms or deals in the Wall Street Journal like you do today. In fact, the quick anecdote, which is when I was interviewing with NEA, I called a, a good friend of mine who worked at JH Whitney, now Whitney and Company. And I asked him, 
to ask his senior partners for a reference on NEA. And he called me back and he said, they've never heard of them. But that was the industry back then. So I, I think the thing that has changed the most in healthcare investing is just the scale of private capital that companies can now access. When I joined the business in the mid-90s, it was really doing a couple of private rounds, trying to make some progress and hoping that there would be an IPO market to allow you to raise enough capital to kind of finish the job. And there was an IPO market for pre-commercial companies. In there, I'm talking largely about biotech and medical devices, but private rounds were rarely more than 10, 15, maybe $20 million back in the late 90s. And so the huge change today is that, you know, for a lot of these companies, the IPO market, while it may be attractive and lower cost capital, is less of a requirement because the scale of capital that's available in the private markets has just gone up so significantly. So I think that's been a major, major change that I've seen. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like at Questa, you're focused on kind of three main categories within healthcare. Were those categories as much of a focus while you were at NEA or, or did they kind of come about because you saw shifts happening in overall healthcare technology? So the areas that we've decided to focus on at Questa are really the three areas where I had a primary focus during my time at NEA. And that's healthcare software, tech-enabled services, and then medical devices, where I did a lot of my investing. We had a very significant biotech investment practice at NEA, really one of the leaders in the industry. And for a period of time where I was running the healthcare group, that reported to me, but I was never a biotech investor. You know, We had a very talented team of biotech specialists who really managed that investing practice for us. And so when I went to set up Cuesta, I had sort of decided that Biotech was a pretty separate world, and it had pretty separate investment attributes from the rest of healthcare. The capital requirements are significantly larger in most cases. The risk profile is different. It's hard to eliminate risk out of some of these companies really until they run a phase three trial, which can be five, eight, 10 years into their life cycle. And accessing the public markets has become a really critical element for biotech companies. And so we just decided that Given the scale that we were planning to invest in at Questa, we consider ourselves sort of a boutique. Our first fund was 200 million. Our second fund was 350, that we didn't really have the scale to do biotech. And, and that also it just didn't fit with our broader strategy and size of investments we wanted to make. So long story short, we decided to eliminate that from our focus. Uh, the other thing I was curious about was you stayed quite a bit of time at NEA before launching Questa. Was it always something kind of in the back of your mind to start your own fund? What, what determined kind of the timing? And I ask that question because we speak with and we see a lot of folks that spin out fairly early. And so it seemed like maybe you took a little bit more time. I'd say it was always somewhere in the sort of distant recesses of my mind, but I had an incredible career at NEA and I was very bought in and committed to helping build that firm from the 750 million AUM when I joined to nearly 20 billion when I left. But I think 20 years is probably enough to do any job. And I was also fortunate. I attracted and mentored an incredible group of younger partners at NEA. And frankly, when I left in 2015, you know, they were ready to take over. And so Mohammed Maksumi, who runs the healthcare group now, is a great friend and was a fantastic partner for years and years. And so, you know, clearing the path for some others to do their thing while I started something new was very appealing. And as you were 
beginning Questa and thinking through what you want the firm to become, what were some of the key attributes or key aspects to kind of running your own firm that you wanted to really live out? One was we wanted to run a pretty concentrated portfolio. I guess our belief is that in order to provide the most benefit, we really want to keep our portfolio down to 10 or 12 companies per fund. And that way, each of the senior partners at our firm can have an ongoing relationship with every portfolio company. They can get our time directly. And then also on the flip side, when we do have a significant outcome in terms of a positive return, it really impacts the fund in a material way. If you're putting 2 or 3% of your fund into a portfolio company, even if you do 10x, it's hard to move the needle. Whereas if we've got something more like 10%, we can really impact the fund in a material way. So, you know, that was one. Two was we really wanted to focus on high growth companies, but that were not kind of first money in. So, you know, we consider ourselves what we call an influential minority investor. Very, very rarely are we in a majority position. We're typically shooting to own 20 to 30, maybe a little bit more percent of the company. But be very engaged. We've got multiple board seats, at least one at every company, but multiple at some, and really be the entrepreneur's partner in terms of scaling the company. And so that's really the sort of drive that got us to form Cuesta. And firms have varying degrees of ways they assist their portfolio companies. What would you kind of highlight about Cuesta? How may it be different than other firms and their approach to their portfolio companies? I think we see ourselves as valued advisors and resources to our portfolio. We are not a command and control kind of investor, but you mentioned I've been fortunate to serve on 40 boards. My partner, Brad, has served on 20 plus. And so our network and our pattern recognition is really what enables us to help companies. And so I'd say we're available and engaged. And so where we come in to really help companies is helping them professionalize. Oftentimes the companies we're investing in, they may have raised five or 10 million from angels. They've done a a good scrappy job kind of getting the company going and some initial commercial success, but they haven't built sort of an infrastructure for long-term success. And that's really where we want to help. So whether it be hiring, filling out the senior management team, we're very, very engaged in hiring In a few cases, like our portfolio company, Medrio, we actually led the CEO search when entrepreneur Mike Novotny decided that he wanted to pass the baton. So we're very involved in hiring and recruiting. We're very involved in compensation. So we're on the comp committee of just about every company that we're involved with. And so we have a broad perspective. We have a pretty broad view of what's going on in the marketplace in terms of comp. We're very involved in board recruiting. So we've helped recruit outside directors to most of our companies, typically people who we've worked with in the past, but sometimes new people that we're bringing into the fold. When it comes time to do additional financing, whether it be debt or equity, we're very, very involved in that process, whether it be making introductions, helping guide the process, providing strategic input. And then when it comes time to deal with what I'll call the strategic side of the equation, whether it be investment bankers, M&A advisors, strategic acquirers, you know, we're very well connected in that arena. And so we can facilitate all of those as well. 
What we don't do is employ an army of operating partners who descend on the company. We try to be a little bit more flexible in that arena where we have a really, really deep bench of advisors and consultants who we've worked with in various areas. So if somebody needs help in marketing, in manufacturing, in regulatory affairs, we have an array of advisors who we've worked with in all those ways that we're happy to draw upon and make connections to. But we don't want to force an arranged marriage on somebody. What we want to do is provide options, if you will, and ones that are well-qualified because we've worked with them in the past. And so that's really what we seek to do when working with the companies. Are there one or two sub-specialties that you find really intriguing within kind of either the medical device or healthcare software arena? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of things right now, which we're intrigued with. The first, and it's been around for a long time, but we sort of feel like it's starting to enter a new phase, is value-based care in terms of tech-enabled services. And it's been talked about for a long time. There's been some success, but I think people would generally agree it's taken a little longer to develop than people had expected. It's had some great success in places like Medicare Advantage, where caring for elderly patients and having a very engaged provider group has shown great success. You know, some success in oncology, but we see it moving much more broadly. We have a portfolio company called Cortica, which is doing value-based care for autism, and we're seeing really great results there. We've seen some other really interesting things across renal care and dialysis, across other areas in behavioral health. So we're excited about value-based care, and, and we think that's got a really bright future. In medical devices, we're really excited about connected devices. I think it's a whole new world for medical devices. When I started in this industry in the mid-90s, medical devices were just physical objects, which provided some benefit, either a coronary artery stent, which you would implant in somebody's heart, or you know maybe a glucometer for somebody to test their blood glucose. But none of these were connected in any way. So they provided an immediate benefit to the patient, but they didn't provide an ongoing stream of data. And I think that's the biggest change that we've seen is not every device today is connected, but we're headed that way. And so the implications in terms of being able to improve care and provide better monitoring for patients, I think are really profound. So we've made a couple of investments along that theme and a company called Echo, which is a digital stethoscope, which is a connected device, also has EKG. And so we think that's really exciting and has a really bright future. And then we made an investment earlier this year in a company called Evive, which is a connected automated external defibrillator for reviving patients who suffer from out-of-hospital cardiac issues, trying to prevent their death. We think the ability to connect devices is really, really exciting. And over the next 10 or 20 years, we'll have a really fundamental shift in that industry. Well, we're coming up on time here. I have a, two final questions I like to ask at the end of my interviews, and, and these veer towards more of the personal. But first question is, can you tell us about a book that may have had a profound impact on you? And if that's too serious, you can just provide a book recommendation. I read a book when I was a teenager, which was an autobiography of Dr. Richard Feynman. I don't know if you know Dr. Feynman. He was a, a very accomplished physicist. And the book is called Surely You're Joking, Dr. Feynman. And it talked about his own background as well as his life in sort of academia and physics. But what I found most interesting about it was he showed that you could both have an irreverence towards life as well as sort of intellectual intensity. 
And he combined those two in a really, really fascinating way. So it hit me at a formative moment, but I thought it was a really, really outstanding book and a little more engaging than his other books, which are the Feynman Lectures on Physics. Last question. Can you tell us about a leader that you particularly admire? This could be across any domain of expertise. I think Bill George, who was the CEO of Medtronic for many years and has been involved in a lot of like mentoring and, and leadership in academia, is a really impressive guy and somebody who I followed closely. He led a great company during a really exciting, expansive stage in their history. But I think, you know, did it with the great ethical approach to the business, great energy. And so I think Bill is a fantastic leader. Excellent. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you again for taking the time to chat with us today. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thanks, RJ. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you and appreciate all the time.